0: free will. The question is ancient. If God hardened Pharaoh's heart, then it was God who made Pharaoh refuse to let the Israelites go, not Pharaoh himself. How can this be just? How could it be right to punish Pharaoh and his people for a decision that wasn't made freely by Pharaoh himself? Punishment presupposes guilt. Guilt presupposes responsibility, and responsibility presupposes freedom. We don't blame weights for falling or the sun for not shining. Natural forces are not choices made by reflecting on alternatives. We alone, homo sapiens, are free. Take away that freedom and you take away our humanity. How then can it say, as it does in our parsha that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? All the commentators are exercised by this question. Maimonides notes a striking feature of the narrative for the first five plagues we read that Pharaoh himself hardened his heart. Only later during the last five plagues do we read about God doing so. So therefore the last five plagues were a punishment for the first five refusals made freely by Pharaoh himself. A second approach in precisely the opposite direction is that during the last five plagues God intervened not to harden but to strengthen pharaoh's heart he'd been reeling under so many blows that unless god had given him additional strength or hardness he would have had no free will at all so god was here giving pharaoh his freedom a third approach calls into question the very meaning of the phrase god hardened pharaoh's heart in a profound sense god is really the author of everything That happens, every act, every gust of wind that blows. Normally, however, we don't attribute human action to God. We are what we are because that's how we've chosen. When do we attribute an act to God? When it's very unusual. When it falls so far outside the norms of human behavior that we find it hard to explain in in any other way. And that is, therefore, why the terrorist says this about Pharaoh. Everyone else would have given it after the first few plagues. But Pharaoh's obstinacy was so unusual that the Bible attributes it to God, whereas in truth, it's just another way of saying it was Pharaoh's decision. Well, these are all interesting interpretations offered by the commentators. But it seems to me the Torah is telling us a deeper story and one that never loses its relevance. Philosophers and scientists tend to think in terms of Binary logic, yes or no, we have free will, we don't have free will, there's no no conceptual space in between. But in real life, that's not the way freedom works at all. Consider addiction. The first few times you smoke a cigarette or drink alcohol or take drugs, you do so freely. You know the risks, but you ignore them. But as time goes on, your dependency increases until the craving is so intense that you're almost powerless to resist it at that point you may have to go into rehabilitation you no longer on your own have the ability to stop as the Talmud says (laughs) a prisoner cannot release himself from prison addiction is a physical phenomenon but there are moral equivalents for instance supposing you tell a lie people now believe something about you that isn't true As they question you about it or it comes up in conversation, you find yourself having to tell more and more lies to support the first. As Sir Walter Scott famously said, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. That's as far as individuals are concerned. When it comes to organisations, the risk is even greater. Let's say that a senior member of, of staff in a company has made a costly mistake that, if exposed, threatens the entire future of the company. He will make an attempt to cover it up. To do so, he'll have to enlist the help of others who then become his co-conspirators. As the circle of deception widens, it becomes part of the corporate culture, making it ever more difficult for honest people within the organisation to resist or protest. It then needs the rare courage of a whistleblower to expose and halt the deception. There have been many such stories in recent years. Within nations, especially non-democratic ones, the risk is higher still. In a commercial enterprise, you know exactly the quantity of the loss. Someone somewhere knows how much has been lost, how many debts have been concealed and where. In politics, there may be no such objective test. It's easy to claim that a policy is working and explain away apparent counter-indications. A narrative emerges and it becomes the received wisdom. Hans Christian Andersen's tale, The Emperor's New Clothes, is the classic parable of this phenomenon. A child sees the truth and in innocence blurts it out, breaking the conspiracy of silence on the part of the king's counsellors. In other words, we lose our freedom gradually, often without noticing it. That's what the terror has been implying almost from the beginning. The classic statement of free will appears right at the beginning in the story of Cain and Abel. Seeing that Cain is angry that his offering hasn't been accepted, God says to him, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The maintenance of free will, in other words, especially in a state of high emotion like anger, needs willpower. As we've noticed before in these studies, There can be what Daniel Goldman calls an amygdala hijack, in which the instinctive reaction takes the place of reflective decision and we do things that are harmful to us as well as to others. That's the emotional threat to freedom. Then there's a social threat. A lot of work was done on this in research after the Holocaust. Solomon Ashe, for instance, famously conducted a series of experiments in which eight people were gathered in a room and were shown a line, then asked which of three others was the same length. Unknown to the eighth, the seven others were associates of the experimenter and were following his instructions. On a number of occasions, the seven gave an answer that was clearly false, and in 75% of cases, the eighth was willing to give an answer knowing it to be false, just to conform to the rest of the group. Yale psychologist Stanley Milgram showed that ordinary individuals were willing to inflict what seemed to be devastatingly painful electric shocks on somebody in an adjacent room when instructed to do so by an authority figure, the experimenter. Uh, The Stanford Prison Experiment, conducted by Philip Zimbardo, divided participants into the roles of prisoners and guards within days. The guards were acting cruelly and in some cases abusively toward the prisoners and the experiment that was planned to last a fortnight had to be called off after six days. The power of conformism as these experiments showed is immense. And that, I think, is actually why Jewish history begins with a command to Abraham to leave his land, his birthplace, and his father's house. These are the f- three factors, culture, community, and early childhood, that make us conform, that circumscribe our freedom. Jews throughout the ages have been in but not of society. To be a Jew means to keep a calibrated distance from the age and its idols because freedom needs time and distance so that you can make reflective decisions and not be lulled into conformity. And of course, most tragically of all, there's the moral threat. We sometimes forget, actually, sometimes we don't even realise, that the conditions of slavery the Israelites experienced in Egypt were often enough felt historically by the Egyptians themselves. I mean, the great pyramid of Giza that was built more than a thousand years before the exodus, even before the birth of Abraham, reduced Egypt to a slave labor colony for 20 years. When life becomes cheap and people are seen as means not an end, then when the worst excesses are excused in the name of tradition and rulers have absolute power, then conscience is eroded and freedom is lost because the culture has created insulated space in which the cry of the oppressed can no longer be heard. And that is what the Torah means when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Enslaving others, Pharaoh himself became enslaved. He became a prisoner of the values he himself had espoused. Freedom in the deepest sense, the freedom to do the right and the good, is not a given. We acquire it or we lose it gradually. In the end, tyrants bring about their own destruction, whereas those with willpower, courage, and the willingness to go against the consensus acquire a monumental freedom. And that is what Judaism is, an invitation to freedom by resisting the idols and siren calls of the age.